0: The American poet, Carl Sandburg, once said, nearly all the best things that came to me in life have been unexpected, unplanned by me. And I've always been fascinated by the way that people's stories unfold because there always seems to be twists and turns that they didn't prepare for. Maybe we prepare for them and then other twists and turns come, I don't know. But these twists and turns end up being the most important elements of our journeys. My guest today, Barrett Ward, is no exception to this idea. Leading a fashion lifestyle brand might be a very unlikely role for someone who self-describes as quote-unquote, not a fashion guy, but that's exactly where ABLE founder and CEO Barrett Ward found himself. As the visionary behind the rapidly growing Nashville-based company disrupting the fashion industry with a social conscience, Barrett was inspired to start ABLE in 2010, with the mission of creating sustainable business opportunities for women. Today, the company employs more than 300 women in Ethiopia, Peru, Mexico, and Nashville. And they have this incredible, I don't wanna spoil it, but they have this incredible vision of creating greater accountability, not just for their own company, but for companies around the world to make sure that they're treating their employees fairly. We dive into that plan in this episode, it's really cool. Barrett's story is so inspiring to me. His winding career path from sales to a nonprofit to social enterprise and ambitions to end generational poverty by creating well paid jobs for those who need it most is only a piece of it. He's one of the most humble and gracious people I've met and also one of the most engaging storytellers. I'm Brandon Harvey and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I loved this conversation with Barrett. It was so much fun. He's a great storyteller. So without any further ado, let's just jump straight into this conversation. How is it going, man? How's your Oh, <laughs> um,
1: man, it just got started. I mean... I, I rolled out of bed at 5.30 this morning. I, I did 6.30. I And I don't I don't want to roll out of bed at 5.30, <laughs> but if I don't roll out of bed at 5.30, I have four daughters. If I don't roll out of bed at 5.30, I have no private time in a day. Uh, so that's my time to kind of relax in the morning. But yeah. by the time the first person's up around 6.37, it's own. And yeah. then it's, it's hanging out with them, which I love in the morning. And then I go to work at around 9, and then... You no know, full day at work, come home, full speed ahead with the kids again, and then put the kids to bed down by 8:30 and then pass out. Yeah. Because I don't, I mean, we tried to watch Wild Wild Country last night on Netflix. The best. And I, so I, the good. first 17 minutes were amazing before I passed out.
0: <laughs> and I can't wait to see the next part. Man. What do you spend your day with then? So do you show up at the office? Is that kind of... Most but, of the time. And you're interacting with people probably all day.
1: Yeah, we've got um, our officer over in the Nations in Nashville. I love that. It's amazing over there. Uh, by the new Frothy Monkey and Nikki's oh, it's beautiful. Pizza. it's It's amazing. So... Uh, we have about little over sixty employees there, and wow. so that keeps us busy. That's amazing. Uh, I didn't and, realize you
0: guys were that big.
1: Well, there's a lot of people there, that's for sure. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and I'm one of two dudes, so it is very much a really a brilliantly woman-run company.
0: And that, I mean, that's something that has always been a part of your guys' mission is empowering mm. and supporting women. And so maybe we, before we get too far into that, let's yeah. bring it back a little bit. Dial it um, back. I kind of want to bring it back to the beginning of you starting the company, but I, let's start a little bit earlier than that because when did you first become interested in creating a difference, making a difference in the world, whether it's you know nonprofit, for-profit, whatever it is, where do you think that spark came from?
1: It's so funny you say that. I, the truth is I didn't have that spark for the longest of times. Okay. I didn't even my, – my, my 20s and even my youth was this thought of, the pursuit of wealth and success and, uh, or financial success, I yeah. should say. And, and I did that in my twenties. What know, did I you kind of it, study
0: and what kind of work? Well, I,
1: I studied Japanese language and literature, literature at Indiana University. It's a great
0: way to get rich. is yeah. what I always say. Well, it sounds super... <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, literature But at that point, the thought in my mind was, so now I'll learn Japanese and I'll align myself with Japan, who's an economic powerhouse now.
0: Fascinating. Yeah.
1: So that's where my head was in my 20s. And, you know, I had seen poverty. i had seen suffering mostly in pictures, but I had never really touched it. And okay. I think for me, I'm a two-by-four guy. I need a two-by-four upside the head to <laughs> to really realize what's happening. Um, my wife would probably agree with that. And I went actually to a tr- on a trip to Peru. Okay. It was kind of with a church, and it was just to go and serve the poor. And I really didn't know what I was getting into. I just thought I would be traveling. I loved yeah. traveling. So Peru is beautiful. My 20s, you know, I traveled – to Egypt and to Europe and done all these things. So Peru, hey, sounds yep. great. But little did I know that what we would be doing is serving people that you know lived in ten shacks uh, that are in rooms about five by five. You know, prefabricada casas is what they were called, mm. and um, and I'll never forget. And I still have her picture of this young girl walking out and throwing dirty water in her face to clean up. And I just looked at her and I thought this i don't get this i don't i don't even have context for someone throwing dirty water in their face that's yeah. really cute and under the age of 4 i didn't i didn't even have a way to relate to it. it it was it was kind of a seminal moment of me having to recalibrate now hold on i just bought this dream car that i was so excited about and now i'm here 2 weeks later something is not lining up. So yeah. that that started a path for me of you know within within a year I had left my job and was traveling wow. the world to trying to find out what my place was going to be.
0: That's that's so interesting that that was kind of the inciting incident that led to you. Did you just kind of drop what you were doing and you just started kind of exploring how can I do something about this? I get what was your kind of thought process?
1: Yeah, I that that gives me more credit on the fact that I'm actually that thoughtful um, it's more kind of stumbling over my next foot, you know yeah. I when I saw that, it wasn't a thought I need to solve this, I need to do something about this. It was more just a thought of at this moment, I'm not on the right trajectory yeah, I'm not where I need to be i don't I don't feel safe anymore in the activities of trying to. Just be career driven. Mm -hmm. There needed to be a bigger scope for me. So the next step was just simply coming home and talking to friends and saying, What should I do about this? And so we went on another trip to Ireland and I went on another trip to Africa. And it was just trying to get a sense of where do I feel home in this world? Where do I feel peace at my activity level, at the people I'm surrounding myself with? Yeah. Because I, I I just didn't realize to that point in my life everything was about the pursuit of the next thing hmm. as opposed to how am I doing today? Interesting. Know?
0: And then how were you doing today at the at, at kind of like <laughs> as, as you had been going through that process? Yeah. At the end.
1: At the end of that process. Yeah.
0: As of today? No, I mean I guess I don't. I guess I don't know in the end of the process. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's still going right. Uh, I don't want to have. As my friend says, I don't want to have destination sickness and feel like I've got to be somewhere to be happy or to yeah. have it all together. Yeah, but, I relate. Um, I think for me, when I started traveling the world, the place that I felt felt it most, most at home was Ethiopia. Okay. Uh, and I don't know why, but I, I could just say my spirit rested. The people were right. Hmm. And so, ironically, I did that in my early 30s, and then I met my wife, and by the time we got married... Uh, we got a job offer from her side. She got a job offer to move to Ethiopia. Wow! So that felt kind of serendipitous yeah. and obvious, right? And so, we Wait, moved... did you have
0: kids at that point? No kids. Okay. We moved
1: to Ethiopia in two thousand and eight. Wow! Uh, we moved right after we got married in two thousand seven.
0: Okay, what's it like being a newlywed in you know a <laughs> new country?
1: You know, we got warned deeply <laughs> to not do that. Yeah, I um, bet. It probably also wasn't the wisest thing that at the beginning of our marriage we moved into an orphanage with thirty other kids. Oh so no! So that wasn't genius. Uh, <laughs> I, we moved out within a few months. Good, um, good. so that we could enjoy our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, some people say don't start right away with having kids. Right? Well, we it, did that's uh, thirty so at funny. the orphanage, but. It was—a lot of people warned us against it, and, and I appreciated that advice. I appreciated, like, look, your marriage is going to be stressful enough. It's hard enough to figure out and get your bearing straight when you're learning to live with someone, and you really want to focus on your marriage. And Rachel, uh, as the story often goes, was the courageous one and mm-hmm. was like, I appreciate what people are saying, but I still feel like it's between us and God, and we need to figure this thing out, and if this is what we need to be doing— then this is what we need to be doing. So we need to take everybody's wisdom, yeah, and we need to add it to the the process. But it doesn't need to be the final decider for me. So that's something I've really had to learn to do—to listen to my own voice. I uh,
0: I'm yeah. very
1: dependent on what people think. Yeah,
0: I think I am too. I I definitely I love to absorb other people's information. But I I had a friend just kind of offering me advice recently, just saying like, you have the ability to make this decision. Like you can you. In your business, in your life, like you can, you can just decide to do things, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, I, I, right. I never decide to do things without uh. talking to twenty people about it. And so, just what are you on the Enneagram? Mission, I mean, I'm a seven. Okay. What are you?
1: Well, I'm accused of being that often, but I'm a two actually. Oh,
0: really? Okay. I'm
1: a, I'm a helper. That's right, I'm just curious because no, of I, your leading stories. Yeah, I, I was, I was
0: thinking you could be a seven too. Um, for those listening who who don't know what the Enneagram is, the go Enneagram, find out. Yeah. The, Google it. Uh, but, yeah, that's so funny. Um, okay, so you're in Ethiopia, newly married. You move out of an orphanage. Uh, I guess what kind of work were you doing?
1: So Rachel was working in the adoption space. Okay. And I was working with Mocha Club, which is a another local nonprofit right. that we had started back in 2005. And that that was working a lot with clean water and it was working a lot and focusing in the space of vulnerable women and vulnerable children.
0: Wait, so you started Mocha Club?
1: I did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, well, and it was the best and it's still the best and it's still rolling and doing incredible work. Uh, but while Rachel and I were living there was the I was when the idea for, at that time it was called Fashionable and now it is called Able. Yeah. Uh, that That's where that idea was spawned while we were working there.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, so... You know, we don't have to get too far into this, but you know, you started Mocha Club and then you started Fashionable, now Able. What had you been doing with Mocha Club that you felt like I need to do this other thing?
1: You know, golly, I mean, um, and now when I say golly, does that make me sound like um, an 80 year old man? I'm not an 80 year old man. I mean, Uh, um, I may, yeah, (laughs) I'm in my early 40s. Perfect. Okay. As far as you know, important to clarify. Um, But, Again, I I feel like everything that I've been able to be a part of is just looking at, as of today, what's the problem? What am I going to do about it? And so when we were living there, when we were working with Mocha Club, one of the things that I came across that I have never really seen up close and personal was the commercial sex industry. Mm. And so that includes women in prostitution. It includes young girls in forced sex slavery. And so in seeing that... I think the biggest shift for us it's not that it's not that we didn't believe in nonprofit work anymore nonprofit work or charity I should say the the, the charitable work of of dealing with those that are suffering deeply and helping them get a leg up getting them started getting them off of the ground is critical work mm-hmm. and what we observed was is that there was not enough people involved in the economic empowerment side of solutions yeah. to poverty and so what what we were doing was talking to these women and asking them what can we do to help and and so we had aligned ourselves with another nonprofit that was doing th- cha- you know therapy and counseling yeah. and group counseling and child care and healthcare seventy five percent of these women were HIV positive mm. but the thing that I continually heard from those women which became kind of seminal moment number two in my life was they kept saying look thanks for all this this charity is great. But when we're done with this little process with you, we're back on the streets. And what are we going to do about that? Yeah. They said, we need a job. And yeah. so it's kind that, of
0: Maslow's hierarchy of needs to some degree. It's <laughs> that's like, right. hey, of course, people need clean water. They need shelter. They need to have their health taken care of. But after that, like, what do you do? What, yeah. What's next? Um,
1: and, and, I, yeah. and there
0: wasn't an opportunity or there's there was little not, There's
1: very little opportunity, right? I mean, you know. When you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think for, for there, there's that element of dignity, right? That starts to come up towards yeah. the top of the needs after you've met, met your basic necessities. And I think with the poor, I had had probably somewhat of a diminished expectation as if they got themselves in this situation. Yeah. And the reality is they don't want charity any more than you or I would they want yeah. an opportunity to thrive yeah. and succeed. And so so for Rachel and I, that became the big next venture was, okay, let's see what it looks like to to create jobs. And That's so we cool. asked the women what they wanted to do. And Mulu and Bezawayu and, and Mesalu said, well, let's make some scarves. And, you know, if they would have said, let's make chairs, we'd be a chair company today. <laughs> but they said, let's make scarves. So we started... Uh, making scarves. We launched them on the Mocha Club as a campaign called Fashionable. And within about a two-month period, we'd sold somewhere around 4,123 scarves. (laughs) And we realized, holy mackerel, this is resonating with people. The idea, especially with women, just the idea of empowering women. Now, I know that's a hot topic right now, but this was 2010. Yeah. And what we found people were resonating with was the concept that that your purchase can actually create jobs for someone else in the world, a sustainable job. And so I think people started moving into that conscious consumerism around that time. Yeah,
0: and one of my favorite things about conscious consumerism is just this idea that Hey, I'm gonna buy a scarf anyway. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna buy something that I need no matter what. Right. So you might as well Preach. buy it from a company who's making a difference. My pet peeve, and I, I almost hesitate to say this. Get it. But my pet peeve is nonprofits who are like, Oh, we're selling this t-shirt that has our logo on it. But it's it's just it's like made in China. the USA, made in China. It's uh, you know, it's just it's not a cool thing. It's just this is the way that they're getting people to support them just because they, they slap their logo on it. it. It's basically saying, hey, donate to us and we'll give you something back. It's kind of the NPR model. Right. Uh, that's interesting. Model. And I've I'm, never
1: really thought of it that way.
0: I'm a much bigger fan of saying, oh, here's something that's valuable and interesting and we're going we're gonna to sell this to you because you want it and here's the story behind it. Because like, when you're buying that T-shirt that just has a logo on it, you're, you're just buying the story. That's right. why you're supporting it, but I'd rather just see people donate that money. Right. Don't have to pay the few bucks for this shirt. Right. Um. Or get or you know spend your money on something kind of sustainable and more long term by you know actually supporting people and empowering people.
1: Right. And and wouldn't it be ironic if that shirt that you purchase is made by, you know, child labor yeah. somewhere else in the world? Yeah. Which could often which be the case. I'm,
0: especially if you're you know trying to save money so that you're maximizing how much of the donation comes to like, comes to actually have an impact. So you right. get a cheaper shirt and that's, that's the problem. And and so I love your model because you guys started selling things that were actually valuable and just by purchasing it, you know, it's employing these people. It, it just, it keeps the doors open and you know, for them to just keep on making things and keep on having jobs and keep on making right. money.
1: Right. I, you know, and the thing is we're all figuring it out, right? I, I think You know, you look at models like One for One, like Tom's Mm -hmm. and giving a pair of shoes away. You know, they've learned over time that, well, maybe giving that piece away isn't as important as making sure that it's manufactured by someone That it's giving that job to so they can afford their own pair of shoes. And and but at the same time, there's I don't feel a need to poo-poo what people have done as if at this moment in time I've figured everything out. Yeah. Right. Like I I feel like we are at ABLE trying to do some really innovative things around transparency and around. And, and around how we are involved in the solutions to poverty, but it's certainly an ever-evolving, we're learning more every yeah. day, how do we do this the right way?
0: Not to mention, the best way to critique something is to just do it better. You know, and and then... Yeah, <laughs> if, if as you're, opposed to
1: critique it, that's well said. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean,
0: because anybody can critique things. There's yeah. this quote from John Foreman where he says, I used to be mad at people for throwing rocks at stained glass windows, but now I just spend my time building stained glass windows. Right. And I love this idea that, you know, somebody can, somebody can critique something from the ground and they can say that you're doing that badly. But until you've actually tried to do that thing, like yeah. I don't know if you've got a leg to stand on, and if you can do something better, one hundred percent, a professional
1: critical person, yeah.
0: And so I, I've I've kind of learned that in the process of starting a company and all this stuff. where I'm like, oh, this is hard. Like, this yeah, is difficult. of course. Why am I crying way. so much? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you launched this as a project underneath Mocha Club, correct? Um, at what point do you realize that this is bigger than? A project under Mocha Club.
1: Well, pretty quickly, I, I, we continue to run it, uh, run with it for the first few years, but in 2014, really towards the end of 2013, our lawyers came to us and said, "This no longer fits under the nonprofit. You have to separate this out." You have no leg to stand on as a nonprofit. You're creating this much commerce, and it's time for you to become a for-profit. Oh,
0: so that gotcha. that to
1: us was honestly jarring. I kind of thought I was going to be in the nonprofit world for the rest of my life. Yeah, but um, you know, like I said, I, I don't think a lot of my decisions were made super thoughtfully. It was kind of like <laughs> forced upon me. And the yeah. next thing for us was just simply, oh gosh we've got to do this for-profit thing. Yeah. So we did. Yeah. And what it ended up doing is giving us the opportunity to scale and have far more impact than we ever thought we would have as a nonprofit.
0: Let's talk about the impact for a second. So you have a few things going on here. One of them is that uh, you are giving people jobs instead of just you know, giving people handouts. Mm. Um, it's its a hand up versus a handout, which is cool. Um, you also have, let's see, women. You're specifically focused on women. Correct. Um, tell me about that thought process.
1: Well, you know, when I look back at the trajectory of my career, it, it always had been involved with women. And then, not ironically, I ended up having four daughters. <laughs> and it just feels like that's the storyline. You know, we started off working with women because we just had a heart for it. Yeah. But one of our employees, Jen, often says even though that's why we started it, having a heart to serve women, little did we know it was also the most effective strategy for combating extreme poverty. Yeah. So as we grew in it and as we learned that it was an effective strategy that women reinvest so much more into their families than men do, they and I think that kind of resonates obviously, but it's statistically and socially scientifically proven yep. as well that that women, you know, Melinda Gates says something to the the effect of when you invest in a woman, you invest in those that are investing in others, right?
0: Hmm. And
1: and that is a fact. It's, yep. it's it's not just a heart thing. It's a fact. No,
0: there was there – was, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was a study done uh, by, I think, USAID years ago, and they found that, you know – down to kind of a quantitative level that uh, right. supporting women like really really moves the needle, and I found yep. that almost all the organizations I work with internationally are, are are investing in women. And it's not that the men don't need things; it's just that women. When you empower a woman, you also empower.
1: The family, the, the family, community. Yep. And yeah, and, and it's also the men will get theirs too. Yeah. Typically in society, especially in areas of extreme poverty, men are always the first to be taken care of and yeah. the wage disparity and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's part of the heart behind it. But So we started out, you know, our initial mission was to work with women in Ethiopia. And then we started selling leather goods out of Ethiopia because that's a major piece of commerce for them as well. Okay, But when Rachel and I moved back to Nashville we were really missing working with the women. Yeah. And so we started working with women here in Nashville who have also overcome prostitution or homelessness or addiction. And that was really kind of phase two of our mission is working with women locally as well. That's and we really would cool. love to expand that operation around the country. Um, but, you know, we also, we kind of look at it as, a woman doesn't have to come from a specific circumstance of, of extreme or extraordinary difficulties yeah. in order to have the same impact uh, as any other woman. So we we look at our business as just a woman-empowering business now. That's fascinating. And and there's another – you know, there's a future to where we're going with all this. Yeah. I, I think um, if you want to talk about the future
0: yeah, and where we're I, going. Oh, I love to talk about the future. Let's talk about the future then.
1: <laughs> well – The third level of our mission over the last couple of years that we've been working through is, you know, I love what you do because I think you're really trying to build hope and you are building hope and you're teaching people what to focus on. Uh, And I need that because for me personally, I tend to fall into a little bit of despair sometimes looking at justice issues and things like that. And I can, and I, I kind of wallow in it. And then
0: to some degree, there's a little bit of importance in, Feeling that despair because right. it, it motivates you towards towards solutions. empathy and action and solutions. Empathy and action and solutions. Yep. And so, I mean, that's not like a catchphrase. That's just the three I things like I that. listed. It's my I'm, new catchphrase. <laughs> I'll let you have it. Um, so, I think it's good that you're doing that, but I'll let you continue.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I live but in the that despair, is, is and is a a wall, yeah, I, yeah, I probably continue a little bit too long, <laughs> get a little bit angry, but then it usually fuels a justice thought and what's the solution yeah. towards it, and. What what we kept running into over the last few years is we really wanted someone to go audit our factories, to meet with all of our employees and and say, What is the impact of this work? Is it real? Yeah. Because the last thing I wanted to do was build a company that was, you know, Look, we we know that we can have a good heart about something, and yeah. we, we in the in our front of our minds we say this is good, this is helpful. We're helping women, but the reality is we see all the time in history where we thought we were doing good, and we realize maybe we weren't.
0: It's the feel good versus the real good. Like right. it felt awesome to do that thing. Oh, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it didn't
1: actually help. Yeah. So we I didn't want to stand in front of St. Peter and him tell me, "Man, you really blew this. You <laughs> thought you were doing good." So we we started searching out people that could audit our work. And our biggest disappointment was is that most of these audits missed two elements. One that it was a real serious boots on the ground meeting with the women, look at what was going right or wrong. Yeah. And then secondly, the biggest thing that we saw missing was that there was not a super strong focus on women and protecting women. So, okay. um, so what we did is, is we eventually aligned ourselves with a crew out of New York city that does this kind of work. And they helped us develop an audit that really looked at the, the benefits for women, equality and safety within manufacturing. Because at the end of the day, the, the thing that really just stuck in my craw was this thought that the people that make our goods around the world that we enjoy Can't even meet their basic necessities. Hmm. Now, bro, that's the despair part for me. That's where I start cussing and I get mad and I just can't (laughs) even believe that we're set up that way. So, something's got to change and somehow we have to expose that quickly.
0: And it sounds like it has to be a little bit bigger than just able. You know, it has to be bigger than this company you started because, you know, while I'm going to buy my leather goods and I'm going to buy with a gift for my wife from you guys. I can't buy everything, from, right. from you guys, right? And so, it, so we've it's got to change this systemic something. Thing, yeah.
1: No. So, how do we change the system? So that's what we've really been focused on. So we Man. developed this audit, and we're going to start. Um, uh, w- well, we are on August eighth, and so this might be after. I love it. Uh, the, this publishes, but what we're doing is is we're gonna we're gonna announce this audit. We're gonna invite other brands to join us. But here's the biggest moment in time for us around it, is that. We really feel like if we're going to give access to a consumer to make a quick, simple decision on whether this product I'm purchasing is doing harm or it's doing good, is they simply need to know this fact. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to be, as far as I've seen, the first brand in the world to start publishing the wages of all of our garment workers. Wow. And by doing that, it gives the consumer the most quick, easy access point of education to know. Yeah. Whether this person is th- that, whether um, the shoe brand that moved to Cambodia and Indonesia to do their manufacturing was actually because the minimum wage in that country is even less than it is in China, for example. Got it. Yeah. And so, how do we create exposure so that consumer demand can matter? Because when child labor happened, man, you know, I remember when Nike tried to say, oh, this ain't our fault. Yeah. This isn't our fault. And then all of a sudden, the consumer said, yes, it is. Do something about it. Hmm. So if we can kind of put that information in their hands yeah. around wages and they can demand it, yeah, then you will see poverty change more quickly than it's changed in the last thousand oh, years. I love this. So that's what we're fighting for. Ugh. I mean, if you could picture, the last thing I'd say about it is if you can picture— No,
0: this isn't the last thing. I've got questions.
1: This is good. <laughs> well, the, the, if you can picture a nutritional label, right? Yeah. It is so assumed. It is so assumed, but it has changed behaviors like crazy since it came out. Yeah. and corporations fought. We don't want people to know how much sodium we're putting in this to make it taste better. Yep. We don't want we don't want people to know the preservatives or the junk that's yeah. going into their. They food. just added
0: in the added sugar section, which right. is right. So that's exactly right,
1: and so all of that changes behavior. So in the same way, in 10 years or less, could you imagine if we had a nutritional label on our products? So the yeah. wages, equality, environmental impact, all those kind of things. I love this. Then that's insane. And it starts to change behavior because it cannot not get into your consciousness. Yeah. That if you find out that the woman that made this product doesn't make enough to even live on. Right. Yeah. That she has to work 16-hour days. That's going to change consciousness.
0: Man, okay, so many questions. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I love talking about the future. And this just got me so energized. I will say, full disclosure, I was getting lunch with a friend yesterday, Jeremy Cowart, mm. and he gave me a little bit of insider info and told me about this. And so uh, I was yeah. gonna ask you, but I I I didn't know if you were gonna be able to share it. Because it, yeah, not, yeah, it yeah. hasn't come Let's out yet. Do this. So I'm I'm pumped. Um, okay, so first of all, you're creating this auditing system. Is it just gonna say, you know, an hour on it or is it is is it more of like a coded thing? Because I don't know what $10 an hour or $5 an hour or $1 an hour means in different countries. So,
1: so that, that's a great question. So to begin with, no, it won't just be the wage. It, it has to be a deeper audit. Yeah. So what happens with a lot of audits is I was actually an audit that was done by a major brand in the United States. <laughs> and it was in Ethiopia, and it was very much just kind of a risk mitigation audit. It Got was it. walking around going, where's the fire extinguisher? Where's the exit? Check. Okay, we're good. So now we've covered our risk. We've said that we've audited, yep. so that's baloney, right? Uh, it's got to be a deeper audit. So mm-hmm. our audit meets with a significant number to all of the women at a factory and really does a blind, are blind and anonymous, right? So got they it. have the safety to speak freely. One of the manufacturers that we worked with that we thought was going to get the most glowing review got an awful review because all the employees didn't feel safe in the environment. They felt like if they were to leave work for sickness, that they would have punitive results, checks were being withheld with them. Wow. So so our thing is let's get the good, the bad, and the ugly out there. Yep. So we will create an, or we have created and what is published – is not just the wage, which is the lead piece. I think that's a really clear yep. lead piece for people to understand. But there's a much deeper report, too, that goes into the equality, the safety, the wages and benefits that I had yeah. mentioned before, so that someone that wants to go deeper can. Because if if people just start, quote-unquote, publishing their wages, then we've got a problem. If they don't have a deeper audit done yep. of the work and it's not third-party verified, which is what we've developed as a third-party audit – if they don't have that, then they can't truly have the confidence that that wage is even honest that somebody's yeah. publishing, right? So we really man. want to protect the sanctity of and making sure that the audit is real, third party audited, verified, right?
0: Yeah, I'm just like so pumped about this. Good, thanks um, man. You've got what's your eventual goal one day? So it sounds to me like, uh, you know, to some degree, you you want more brands to take this on than just you guys. Oh, absolutely. Um, this is the hard part is it seems like how do you get brands who are doing a bad thing to to sign up for this? You know yeah. what I mean? All the brands who are doing a good job, it makes them look awesome. Right. All the brands doing a bad and it also informs them on ways they can improve. But all the brands who are like being sneaky and terrible and awful, yeah, why would they sign up? They for this? will
1: PR spin it till the day is long, right? <laughs> and they'll they'll try to protect it. Look, here's the here's the truth. I don't feel like I have to do that at all. Okay. What I feel like I have to do is create a model that is totally transparent, that is that, that gives the consumer insight into, okay, this is honest. They're saying that they're doing this bad th- this thing wrong. They're showing that they're doing this thing well, and we have to develop consumer confidence, right? And if that's all I do, then I know the consumers will demand it. Yeah. So they will look at those big brands that you're talking about and they will start hashtagging, they will start tweeting at them and they'll say, why aren't you publishing your wages? What are you hiding? And eventually, I really believe there's going to be a couple of big brands that will come on fast and they'll say, guys, we got to get ahead of this. This just happened. The dam has been broken. Shit. (laughs) They broke the dam and now – It's going to happen. It's going to become the new nutritional label, right? Yeah. We got to get ahead of this. But then there's some people that will fight it, and they'll try to do everything they can to spin against it, right? Yep. But but all that will change because consumers demand it. So we all the thought was is we got to put this in the hand of the consumers.
0: Yeah. What do you think has shifted in consumers over the last few decades where we're beginning to actually care about these things? You know, I'm thoughtful about my purchases now where do you think that's come from? And then also, where do you think that's going in the future? Yeah.
1: You know, again, I mentioned before, I'm not as hopeful as you are and I want to (laughs) to be and I'm working on that. Um, I, I think there's a small segment. I think your listeners, I think there's people that um, care about what you care about that are definitely on board with conscious consumerism, but we still see in mass that, that that's a small segment. Right. So to me, I think where it's going eventually is that – and we've seen this trajectory of transparency, right? We've seen it go from child labor, then all of a sudden the social movement. But I think what's also happening at the same time is this bubble's about to burst of consumerism. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's something like in a certain period of time, maybe the last 10 years – I'll go fact check it – but the consumers have sp- are now spending 400 percent more – on their clothes and products like that really? than they were a short period of time ago. And we know that's because of that fast fashion movement. Yep. And the way that that fast fashion movement gets to happen is saying that that $10 shirt is disposable and you need two of them to look cute in. Yeah. And what we're really fighting for is to make the consumer go, hold on, I don't need a $10 shirt. Yep. I can just buy one $20 shirt or yep. one $30 shirt that lasts longer, is higher quality. Yep and i don't have to be sold on the fact and that's what i want i want us to almost feel a little bit ashamed or dumb like for a moment yeah and just go crap i got sold i got <laughs> sold by that company spending billions of dollars telling me that i don't look cool enough i'm not smart enough i'm not cute enough therefore i must have more clothes yeah you know but the only way for them to make that work is the biggest part of the cost of any product we purchase is always the labor so, the biggest focus on them is driving down that labor cost, right? Yeah. And so, if we can now, at this weird, special moment in time where there is a conscious consumer movement, but there's also this awareness of, like, hey, we're consuming so much, it's getting ridiculous, right? At that bubble bursting, if we can come right in there and go, here's what the impact is on another person. Yeah. Then I think we can,
0: that might be the pin needle in it. The other thing that I think is so interesting is that. Every single piece of clothes we own was made by a person. I always kind of thought that there were factories where where they just kind of slap it all together. And I've talked with people who work in the fashion industry and then people who also work in the impact world. Like, that's not a thing. Nowhere is that a thing. thing. (laughs) Like Individual hands touch every single piece of clothes that we wear. And the more that we're able to get connected with that that story that that, story empathy right that's that's huge yeah it's the empathy and the relatability we're everybody is so relatable if you just get to know them a little bit
1: right and i think the other moment in time that's really important for this bursting of the bubble is that our digital media access gives us the eyeballs to more clearly understand someone's life that might be on the other side of the world, right? Totally. So I think that's another big segment is the digital piece.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're more connected than we've ever been before. And also just as, you know, when I was in Peru and I was meeting people who, you know, their job is to make clothes, they all have, you know, smartphones and they all have an Instagram and WhatsApp and all these things. And so... All of a sudden, as... All
1: over the world, as, it's that way. Yeah, no
0: matter... Like, I, I've been to places in Africa where yeah. there's no there's no electricity in people's, like, homes. They, like, will walk, just like they'll kind of walk to go get water at, you know, the community. They'll walk well, to go get a charge. They'll, they'll go charge it for a day. And or have a
1: solar panel charger or things yeah, like that. It's that,
0: like everybody has access to it now, and it, it's just something where as kind of this middle class starts to grow and build in the developing world, those are our peers. Those yeah. are the people that we can talk with, get to know, in the same way that, you know, it's not a big deal for me to, uh, you know, meet somebody from New York City on Instagram. Right. Preach. Man, this is so exciting. Okay, so first of all, you guys are launching August 8th? August 8th. And where am I going to, like, Google this?
1: So if you just go to Abel's website, cool. which the the – uh website is livefashionable.com, but you can also just Google Able and yep. we'll come right up. And you'll see a pretty big banner there kind of announcing so it. Cool. And, and And obviously the hope is is that it becomes so viral that you'll find out about it anyway.
0: Yep, right? totally.
1: Um, I'm going to be
0: seeing it on all the things I buy.
1: I hope. I hope the dream comes alive that consumers kind of have a, sh- a really nice little shock moment and, yeah. and just decide to start passing that story around.
0: Man, so you've had a few phases in your career. You've you've started a few new things. You know, you say, oh, we want to have this impact here. And then you're like, no, 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 no. Let's have some impact here. Right. And all of a sudden you, you're, you're pivoting to this new, not pivoting, but you're adding on this additional layer. Mm. I come back to the future again. Where do you see kind of your momentum just as a person, not able, but just, you know, where do you feel like you're going to be moving down the road? Like, what are the things that excites you?
1: Yeah, you know. Uh, it, that's when it becomes the, the the cheesy podcast. All of a sudden, like that's, <laughs> I, I can get super cheesy on it. The, the reality for me is, I feel like this is my last hurrah. You know, mm. I I feel like I want to be driving this across all manufacturing, across all uh, types of industries, that we have transparency into the wages of the people that
0: are making our product. Yeah. So,
1: so this feels like from a career perspective, my last hurrah.
0: How do you know that, you know, like how do you get to that point where you're like, I'm going to stay here? Because I've never done that in my life. Right. And well, I'm, I'm younger than you. but That's like, right. It's hard for me to imagine being like, no, this is like, this is the this thing is I'll do forever.
1: Two things make, make me get there. Is one, I do think it's a really big undertaking. Yep. Uh, but two is, you know, work is both wonderful and joyful, uh, as well as stressful and hard. And that puts some gray hairs on your head, right? (laughs) Like I didn't expect to, when I started able to find myself wallowing on the bathroom floor, crying my eyes out because I was so stressed about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur, Mm. right? I had no muscles for that. And so there is that, that realization that this will not fulfill me. This is not the steady piece in my heart that makes me joyful, at a moment's notice at all times, yeah. right? And for me, that is my family. And I think, you know, especially with my wife and four daughters, you know, I've I've learned to reserve the word fulfillment for home. Work is exciting and wonderful things happen at work. And we see women's lives change. I don't want to diminish that. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, but there also comes with that heartache and challenge and all those things. And, and it's not to say that that doesn't happen within a family. But... I am really excited about this phase of my life of just being a dad and raising up this next group of humans to be leaders in the world, and just to have daily relationship with it. I love. Yeah. I mean, so so I'm loving being a dad right now. That's
0: amazing. <laughs> yeah, I That's, mean, it's like the cheesiest best. It's good the thing. cheesiest animal. in the world. It's, it's actually, Sorry. It's very, no, it's like very. Uh, that's very encouraging to hear. Really? And I love that. I just don't want to
1: be that guy that gets stuck in like my career, you know, like you hear these stories continually of people that crushed it in their careers but were disconnected from the things that were most important to them. And I just don't want that to be my story.
0: Yeah. I love that idea of, of reserving fulfillment for home. Yeah. Because it's, It's easy to use that word at work when it is exciting, and you do get some recognition,
1: recognition and somebody tells you you're doing great, and
0: because it does feel fulfilling, but it's uh, it's short and it's shallow. (laughs) It can be for sure. And there's things that matter a little bit more than that. Man, this is this is a fun conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to have it, man. I love having it. Man, Barrett is such a good guy. I had so much fun. I'm so inspired by the way that he's leaned into the unexpected turns in his own story and has chosen to make a difference in the place he's landed. His passion for empowering others and offering new opportunities to women all over the globe is so inspiring to me. I love how he recognizes that charity can only be the beginning spot. And then at some point, we have to stop and give people the opportunity to stand on their own two feet. I love that. Be sure to follow Barrett's work with Able on Instagram and Twitter at livefashionable. And you'll find everything you need to know about their mission, vision, and products at livefashionable.com. And if you live in Nashville, you absolutely have to stop by the Able store. It's beautiful and it's full of incredible products. I love it so much. You should absolutely dive deeper into this idea of companies publishing their wages and how that sort of accountability tool could be a game changer in the industry. You can find more at livefashionable.com slash publish your wages. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversations with Sean Askinosi of Askinosi Chocolate and Liz Bohannon of Seiko Design. Both of these incredible entrepreneurs have amazing companies that give back, are transparent, and are sustainable. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes in our archives by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Brock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. My team is currently in the trenches of creating and finalizing all of the content for our next issue, Issue 5, and we are so excited for you to get it in your hands. If you haven't already, Subscribe online so you don't miss out on our next year of The Good Newspaper. It'll show up in the mail. It'll be beautiful. You'll probably want to Instagram it. It is so much fun. Check it out and see what else we do at goodgoodgood at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that there is nothing more powerful than when your passion meets one of our world's greatest needs. Let's continue showing up for each other and making an impact. Sound good?